Amen. If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 4. And we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 23. And we'll be reading all the way into chapter 5 and verse 16. Again, the book of Acts chapter 4. And we'll begin in just a moment in verse 23. You'll recall uh, last Sunday I entitled uh, that sermon, and really it is a series of sermons uh, with the title, The Gathering Storm, and uh, alluded to uh, the fact that Sir Winston Churchill had written in regards to the uh, approach of World War II uh, a book entitled The Gathering Storm that, that he could indeed see uh, what was going on in continental uh, Europe. And he knew uh, that soon England would be drawn into uh, that particular conflict. And I appealed to that title as uh, these apostles, I believe, are fully aware that a storm indeed is gathering. That, that soon uh, it will break upon them. And yet I believe also that they had every confidence that the storm would never overwhelm them and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, despite whatever the storm may be, whether uh, general affliction of life in a fallen world or persecution that comes directly to the people of God because of the gospel of our Savior. You see, the gospel will never fail. It will be, it never will be defeated. And the church will not only survive, but it will thrive until the day that we see our Savior. And so we see the example of these apostles as they are empowered by God's Holy Spirit, and as we've remarked, that power is available to us today. The power for the boldness and the conviction to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If the church is to thrive, and I, indeed I believe it is and it will, it will be because there have been men of great courage and great conviction that never fear, they are bold to stand and proclaim as the prophets and the apostles of old. Thus saith the Lord. And so while these storms are gathering and they recognize their human enemies, I'm quite sure they knew there was another enemy that was stalking the church. And he would soon infiltrate and he would soon produce devastation in their midst. So let's look at the second part of this, uh, uh, the gathering storm, part two, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 4. When they, the apostles, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made 
the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and Signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also, uh, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sowed a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by at least, his shadow might fall on some of them. The people 
also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that it is sure, that it is certain, and Lord, it is still powerful. It is what you have ordained uh, to bring salvation to those who do not believe, to bring strength, courage, confidence, comfort to those who do believe. I pray that your spirit would be among us today as promised, that your spirit would indwell us as promised, and that indeed, because of the work of your spirit to both inspire your word and to take your word and apply it to our hearts and our minds, Father, I pray that we would all uh, be changed by that very same spirit, by the power indeed that raised Jesus from the dead. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've often noted, it is always with difficulty that I select the selection or the size of the selection from the scriptures that I will preach on any given Sunday. Uh, I'm far more comfortable taking a very very small portion of scripture and preaching a long time over taking a much larger portion of scripture and preaching a long time. But, uh, but in trying to work through uh, the gospel prequel, the book of Luke, and its successor, the book of Acts, I have tried to see, I believe, how the human author, Luke, and the Holy Spirit work together to, to weave these stories together. They're not, they're not adjacent to each other by accident. Usually uh, one informs uh, the other to, to form a, a cohesive narrative that not only tells us the history of the early church, which it, it does, but also make a particular point to to us even now 2,000 years later that we would hear that we would believe that we would be amazed and yes at times be warned and sobered of the very power of our God and so we see reaching back to the end of chapter 2 the first of what is three snapshots uh, portraits of life in the early church what was normative how what did they do uh, when they gathered and how did God work and uh, indeed we are amazed at the descriptions of the power of God manifested in in healing the power of God manifested in salvation uh, and all of these other ways that God chose to work uh, in and among the people of God uh, through uh, these apostles and so we continue and we see uh, God working, and God working dramatically. God working demonstrably, uh, mightily. And yet at the same time, as we always see from Genesis all the way through the close of the Bible in the book of Revelation, that there is always, if not up close and personal, at least lurking in the shadows, the enemies of God who would oppose the people of God, and in particular, seek to some way thwart uh, the very message of God that is namely the gospel uh, given for the salvation of all who would believe so let's pick up there in verse 23 and we see first of all uh, the confession of God's purpose we see uh, that Peter and John 
uh, return uh, to what is described there as uh, their, their friends. It's an interesting little phrase in Greek. It's pros tus idios. There's nothing about friends mentioned there, but it seems to be a phrase that suggests, again, those uh, that were together in this one mind, that they were, they were a collective. But I, su- I suspect here that it's less than the complete church that's been saved since Pentecost, but it's probably a larger group than just the original 12 apostles. And so uh, they come to the gathering, and they don't whine, they don't complain, but they do uh, report what had happened to them and what had been told them uh, by uh, the religious leaders. And we notice there in uh, verse 24 that the church immediately, or these friends and the apostles, they immediately turn to the Lord in praise and in prayer. And as I reflected and thought about this uh, this week and, and saw what was said here and the, its confessional nature and how important confessions are to the people of God. One of the ways that we confess in the church is that we sing songs that God deserves to hear from His people that, that say to God that which we would say to the one who has saved us. And in my opinion, we sang two great examples that, that Drew, obviously looking at what was going to be preached, selected. And it was interesting. Both of them made an accurate, accurate statement about the, the character and the, the work of God. The first, not particularly catchy in terms of tune but powerful and persuasive in terms of confessing rightly the attributes of God and His presence and power among us. The second song, equally faithful, equally accurate, a little more catchy, a little more singable. Again, it's not that we sing things that are exclusively catchy and singable. We see things that what? We sing things that do what? Say to God what God's people ought to say to Him. Now here it's said that they lifted their voices. I don't know if that's in uh, just confession. I don't know if that was in unison. I, again, in thinking through this this week, over the last 20, 25 years, I have become a fan of uh, the historic confessions and creeds of the church. That they very accurately, the good ones, accurately summarize Uh, the substance of the Word of God. They're not inerrant, infallible, they're not inspired, they're not the same thing as Scripture, but many times they help us get our minds around what Scripture says. And it may be appropriate, and some of you that maybe grew up in a a Methodist church, I often hear the Methodists say that, oh, I remember saying every Sunday the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed wasn't written by the Apostles. The Apostles' Creed was written long after the Apostles passed from the scene. But it seems to accurately say in summary form that which the apostles taught. And so it's a great thing for the people of God to say to God that which he deserves to hear. And you go, well, yeah, I know. And, you know, I'll sing along if I feel like it, you know. Get used to it. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, just in case you need to be reminded. One of the beautiful places in Scripture that indeed, what do we see? We get a glimpse of the glory of God 
in heaven. And what are the people of God doing? They're confessing the greatness of their God and their Savior. Just notice one example in Revelation chapter 4. Verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Now, God doesn't need to be reminded of who He is and what He's done, does He? But He rejoices in hearing from His people that we want to acknowledge to you. We recognize that indeed you're exactly who the Bible says that you are. Look down into chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. Still what? Confessing the greatness of God. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What a great statement of truth made by the people of God directed to their Savior. And so we see here, they too make confession uh, unto the Lord, and the first thing they acknowledge, even amidst the threat, sovereign Lord. In Greek, one word, despotes. You may have kind of, if I wrote it down, you'd say, oh, wait a minute, I see where the English word despot comes from. You see the relationship there. When we speak of a despot, in our times, usually it's very uh, pejorative, very negative, some some mean-spirited uh, ruler that's oppressing his people. But here, again, it means exactly what is noted by these two words. Our sovereign Lord. The, the, the Lord who is sovereign over creation and over every providence of history, which I think was acknowledged in our singing this morning, that we want to celebrate and we want to acknowledge and we are thankful that God is indeed the God of all creation. And the God of all providence. I've mentioned any time that I have occasion to mention the word and the concept of the providence of God, I, I like to note it's a word that's really fallen out of use, and I think it's a tragic thing for the church of God. Too often I hear people who say they're Christians. Well, that sure was what? Lucky. And usually I call them out and say, quit cussing around me. There's no such thing. That is a vile, pagan concept. There is no such thing as luck under the sovereign authority of God. God indeed is the God of all providence. And I want to give you kind of two sides to this. Just, just some, some working things for this week. When, you're, when you sin and act stupid, don't blame God. But when you sin and you're stupid, be comforted that even in your sin and your stupidity, God will work it for your good and His glory. I know that seems a little paradoxical, but y'all can handle it. Okay? It's a good word. It's a good word. And so they confess the, the greatness of God and I wondered, was, was this some kind of early written confession? Was it some kind of, of early liturgy? Was it, was, was it some type of hymn? Uh, certainly, uh, the first section there in 24 and 25 
seems to allude to the prayer of Hezekiah found in Isaiah 37, uh, 16. And then, if your Bible is somewhat like mine, we have a, 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 some lines that are inset that tells us it's a quote from the Old Testament. This particular quote, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples uh, plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed is from Psalm 2. It's one of the David's psalms. It became a coronation psalm and it was recognized as prophetic in anticipating the Lord's anointed, namely His Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a reminder, it's still a reminder, that God's anointed and God's anointed people are always going to be opposed by the people of this world. That, that, that it's simply a fact of a fallen world. And then they acknowledge and make petition here beginning in verse 27, somewhat of a, a recall and an explanation. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Very much like what Peter preached at Pentecost, it is again reminding the people of God as sinful, as tragic as the execution, the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ was, it was that which God had ordained before all worlds were created, that His Son would enter the realm, He would take on the sin of man, He would die in our place for our salvation. Indeed, those who participated were guilty of opposing God, but yet what? It was God's plan through their wickedness to accomplish uh, redemption. And so they are uh, reminded of this great truth and, and they petition the Lord there in verse 29 that they, in, even in view of the threats of those very same enemies who had killed the Lord Jesus Christ, that what? Lord, just help us get out of here. Help us to, to head out of town and help us to, to live out our lives in relative peace and tranquility. No, 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 no. We're going to tell them to bring it on. Help us to continue to preach your word with boldness. You continue to work. We're going to be bold because you're going to empower us to be, to be bold. And by the power of your Spirit, there are going to be supernatural displays of your power among us. Namely, what is referred to here as signs and wonders as we proclaim the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as those things happened, when they had prayed, the house, the building shook. I wish I had time. I had spent a little time thinking about that shaking. And suffice it to say, it's not unusual through Scripture that when God manifests His presence for the earth to shake, when God revealed Himself at Sinai, we saw various phenomenons, but one of them was the ground shook. When Isaiah had his vision in the, uh, the temple in Isaiah 6, we're told the threshold of that temple shook. The most, the most firm foundation part of the temple was shaking at the presence of God. The book of Revelation tells us seven times 
of earthquakes that are to come upon the earth. Again, whether to bless or to judge, even the earth itself cannot handle the awesome presence of Almighty God. That it shakes at the presence and quakes at the presence of Almighty God. So we see there the confession of God's people of God's purpose. Let's move forward into verse 32. We see the expression of the church's unity. Once again, that snapshot there that they were of one heart and one soul, that the church was unified. That the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 and verse 21, I pray that they may be one as we are one. That this was being accomplished, that there was a fulfilling of the answering of Jesus' great high priestly prayer, His intercessory prayer for the unity of the church. They were together, they were confessing God's truth because they were hearing uh, the Word of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that, that God organized the church with the, the prophets and the apostles and pastors and teachers for, so that correct doctrine would be proclaimed, so the church would be united, so that we wouldn't be shaken by the false doctrines and the false professors that are sure to come. He calls upon us in Philippians 1.27 to, to stand as one man I believe picturing that, that uh, Roman uh, military strategy of the phalanx, of these soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield, and it was indeed an irresistible force that swept through the known world. And we're to stand together as one upon the truth of the gospel. And after saying that, he illustrates how we're to be unified of one heart and one mind by following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in the pursuit of humility. In, in setting aside our personal prerogatives for the very glory of God in Christ. And so, they were of one heart and soul. They were united. and They were so united that, that they took of their possessions and said that they could be utilized for uh, the common good and while they were doing that what were the apostles doing they were proclaiming the message of the gospel the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because of this great unity and because of this great charity look there in verse 34 there was no needy person among them that that whether simply the the great outpouring of Christian love or whether their understanding of the Old Testament law that there should be no poor among them that they shared of their possessions so that there would be no need. Now, as we have noted many times, I don't, I'm not going to take the time to really unpack and detail and prove and disprove and all that, but we must say that this seems to be unique in the life of the church, this, this selling and uh, contributing and, and uh, giving kind of all they have for the sake of the good of the church. Certainly, I believe there's an ongoing mandate to the church uh, to give, uh, to provide uh, for charity, for, for the care of the poor. But I will assure you, uh, there, this is no mandate for some type of socialism or communism, either by the state or by the church. Suffice it to leave it there. If you've got any questions for that, we can pursue them later. But we see their sacrificial generosity, and they give the personal example of this man, Joseph, who sold 
of his property that was his, and he chose willingly to sell, to give the money for the good of the church, for the glory of God, for the provision for the poor. And that sets the stage for what we see in chapter 5, the manifestation of God's holiness in this account of Ananias and Sapphira. A couple of things kind of by way of introduction to this. Satan tends to assault and attack the healthy, the flourishing church. The ones that are dead are no threat. You typically do not kick the dead dog or the sleeping dog. It was interesting to me, and I noted this many, many years ago, and I've had a lot of experience with, with fractured churches and, and just some terrible things over the course of, 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 of my life. But for the most part, as troubled as we were, we were orthodox. Okay, At least there was a fairly orthodox confession and proclamation of the gospel. I had many friends that attended, for lack of a better description, liberal churches. Some of the same denomination that I belong to, the Baptist denomination, some of other denominations. But they sure did seem to get along and have a good time. Why? They were no threat to the kingdom of darkness. If you have abandoned the Scriptures, you've abandoned the Word of God, you've denied the truth of the Gospel and its power, well, Satan will leave you alone. Let you all get along and you know gather for bingo on Monday and poker on Thursday and parties on Friday and the dance hall on Saturday and if you're not too tired, come come together for church and hug everybody's neck and smile. And you know, uh, isn't God good to give us a wonderful sunset and a beautiful lake and all these things? And you just go off and enjoy. But those that are committed to the proclamation of the gospel, the gospel, I'm no threat to anybody. Okay, but the gospel is. The gospel is a threat to the king and kingdom. Of darkness and so Satan throughout history has made all types of assaults upon the kingdom of God the, the people of God even God himself as Satan was seemingly a, expelled from heaven for his rebellion against God and so going back to the beginning of the assault upon uh, the image bearers and Adam and Eve he has worked internally and externally to the people of God if you come to the New Testament we see the birth narrative with Herod's murderous attempts to destroy Jesus as a child. And then through the, the life and ministry of Jesus, His, his temptation in the desert, and then uh, the demons uh, at work around Him, and then what I believe were satanically energized religious leaders there uh, within the nation of Israel, and then ultimately the Gentile leaders that colluded and conspired uh, to murder the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only does Satan work externally to the church, more dangerously he works internally in the church. And we see that, again, not, he assaults Jesus himself in the desert. He causes the failure of Peter and the apostasy of Judas. He's at work among the people of God. And so he's always looking for entrances to the people of God. Now, let me just say, just by way of illustration, example, application. To the, to the degree that you entertain sin 
is to the degree that you open the door for Satan in your own personal life, in the life of your family, in the life of your church. Okay? That, that if you're not serious about dealing with sin, then, then, then that's an open invitation for Satan to, to come and to go. And, and so he infiltrates the church and creates divisions and conflicts. He assaults leadership in, in multiple ways. It's not, and sometimes it's by depression and anxiety and discouragement. Sometimes it's by moral failure. But all kinds of ways that, that he particularly targets uh, leadership. He infiltrates with false teachers. When John comments on the Antichrist, he describes him as one that was once among us and then he went out from us, that, that, that there's always those within the church that are false professors and false teachers, false possessors, false brethren, ultimately. It's interesting, as I've said many times, every major figure in the New Testament has something to say about accurate faithful doctrine and false teachers. A, a warning. And I think sometimes people... You know, get a little jaded. Well, there goes Tim again. There he goes, saying this about that, warning, criticizing this, that, or the other. But if we do not defend the truth, it will soon be dismissed from among us. And so we must stand. And so Satan is always at work, and he's always infiltrating. And here, he worked in the hearts and minds of two known as Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. You're probably a bit familiar uh, with the story I call it, Ananias and Sapphira's disastrous collusion. Seemingly, I would say this, and, and one passage many, 30 plus years ago that caught my attention was the passage from Joshua 7 that describes the sin of Achan and how he disobeyed God and kept for himself a few trinkets as they began to take the holy land, the land promised, and God killed him and his family. As an emphatic statement, I am holy and I'm to be obeyed. And I think there's something to be said here in the early days of the church. God makes an emphatic statement. I am holy and I have to be obeyed. And so they conspired together. Maybe they coveted the recognition that Barnabas had gotten, that everybody's you know, celebrating and, and, and uh, giving accolades to, to Barnabas. I, I don't know. But what they did, and it seemed like they had every right to say, we've sold a piece of property, we would like to give to the church half of it, and we're going to keep half of it. There seemed to have been no problem with that, or whatever the percentages would be. But they wanted the church to think that they were giving it all. And Peter ultimately says to Ananias there in verse three of chapter five why has satan filled your heart to lie to the holy spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land again as i mentioned while it remained unsold did it not remain your own and after it sold it was not at your disposal why is it that you contrive this deed in your heart you have not lied to man but to god wow what an indictment and then, having heard this, we're told that Ananias dropped dead. He breathed his last. That, that God's holiness broke out against this great evil. And so they immediately went and buried Ananias. Verse 7 
uh, tells us that about three hours later, Sapphira comes in, not knowing what had happened, evidently. And so Peter begins to question her. And she also lies and falls under the very judgment of God. She drops dead. And she is too buried unceremoniously, it would seem. They carried her out and placed her beside her husband. And the upshot we see there in verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And I would say appropriately so. I think in my lifetime, what we have experienced is the downgrade of the holiness of God and the casualness of the people of God in regards to approaching God. That, that our attitude seems to be, God, I'll give you whatever I want, whatever I don't want, I won't give you, and you should be happy with it. And life should go on. And yet, we are reminded time and time again throughout the Scriptures that we're indeed to have, even as God's people, even as those who are born again. And I would say it's only those that are born again that really have the appropriate ability to fear God. But we should fear God. And we see countless examples. Even in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Go back and read the whole selection there from Hebrews chapter 10 and see, see the context in which this warning appears. John wrote in 1 John 5 that there's actually a sin that leads to death. And he doesn't define it. He doesn't describe it. He just says that is a, a, a reality. And I don't know what it is. But it seems when sudden death syndrome strikes within the church, it seems to be of the type that is a, such a great offense that God chooses like the skilled surgeon would move a tumorous cancer from the body that it is best to take that person out so that they do not threaten the purity and the power of the church. Now, I'll tell you, you know, I, I don't I I hope my driving motivation for that which I do and don't do is not entirely the fear of God. I pray that, that I'm motivated by the love of God, the love of truth. But I must tell you, I have a certain fear of God. That it, it does provide, when nothing else does, a certain hedge that I do not want to cross in the fear of a holy God, of what He would do either to capture my attention or to remove me as a threat to the people of God. And so it is a, an appropriate and powerful warning to the early church. And I would suggest to you, to the church in 2022 that meets right here in beautiful downtown Clay, Alabama. Fourth thing this morning, the demonstration of God's power. Once again, the, the third of these summary snapshots or collages that tell us a bit about the early church that the that there were regularly regular displays of the power of God and that the church 
was gathering together. This was before uh, the outright persecution, before they would be uh, sent out even from Jerusalem and seemingly became the norm for household-type churches. But the, evidently, thousands were gathering there within the temple to, to hear the gospel. But because of this Ananias and Sapphira episode, look at verse 13. None of the rest dare join them, but the people held them in high esteem. In other words, there was an appropriate respect for the people of God, for the message of God. But it's also, this is not a game. And this is not a gimmick. I, one of my favorite Bible teachers is a guy named Steve Brown on a program called Key Life. I haven't had an opportunity to listen to him actually in years and years and years. Got one of the best, best voices in radio. You can't miss him. But I've heard him say many times when people would object well, I just don't know about that God that killed all those people, you know, in the Old Testament and all that stuff. And he always responds, I don't believe I would mess with a God like that. I can't quite do Steve Brown. But, but anyway, but what a good response. If you read your Bible, if you don't come away with anything else, God is not a God to be trifled with, to be presumed upon. He is the God to be worshipped as He demands, not suggests, demands that He indeed be worshipped. And so, even though there was a sense of sobriety and even fear among the people, look there at verse 14, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord. That, that the gospel was at work, that the Spirit of God was at work, that people were being saved. And oh, how we would desire for that to be said of the church in our day, particularly North Clay Baptist Church. That, that the people would recognize the, the truth. And indeed, they would be saved as a display of this very same power. Verse 15 is a, is a strange verse. And I don't have time to really get into a lot of elaboration other than to say it happened. I'm not, it's not clear whether Peter's shadow was uh, the instrument God used to heal these people or not, but it just does tell us that a lot of people were healed, that people were coming from all of the surrounding cities and countryside, and that God was at work. That, that even demons or demoniacs were being delivered from Satan's direct oppression. And so, storm clouds are gathering. The apostles know it. That, that Satan has even indeed infiltrated uh, the church. But the apostles remain unbowed. And the power of God through the gospel is indeed unrestrained. That God is at work. And so we can see here the determination of the apostles, particularly particularly in Peter and John, their boldness, their, their, their refusal to knuckle under uh, to the leadership. We see demonstration of the Spirit's power, a power that we would desire to see in our day. We see a description that should illuminate us to Satan's opposition and how he would uh, work. We see the details of the church's continuing growth. But most importantly, we see their devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, we see really what began the section, and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That continues, and what? God 
is at work in their midst. The storm clouds were gathered, indeed. They continue to gather, and indeed the storms throughout 2,000 years of church history have broken out time and time again. And they will break out. But they never will overwhelm the people of God and the power of the gospel. Pray with me this morning. Father, thank you for your word to us. Bless us as we now prepare to celebrate that which you have ordained for us, that we would indeed be strengthened and encouraged by the truth of your gospel, uh, by, the, by the testimony to the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.